Good morning. Well, please turn in your Bible to the fifth gospel account, the prequel to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you will, which is Isaiah 53, uh, uh, the fourth servant song in Isaiah. Uh, We're in a five-week series where we're looking at a prophecy about the preeminent servant that Yahweh will send into the world, and not only what His servant will do when He comes into the world, but how His people Israel will respond to Him. This particular servant song in the book of Isaiah is composed of five stanzas with three verses each. In the first stanza, we were introduced to an enigma, Uh, the mission that the Lord's servant comes to accomplish Uh, he will be successful in accomplishing, with the result that he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will be the only one truly worthy of praise and honor and glory and blessing. And yet, at the very same time, that stanza goes on to talk about how he'll be marred, he'll be mutilated. And there's this enigma of, well, if he's so successful and he's such a preeminent servant of the Lord, why would He suffer that way, and how could the, the, the suffering fit together with uh, His success and His exaltation? How does that all work out? And that is answered for us in the final stanza of the song. But instead of answering that enigma for us, when you come into the second stanza, you get a brand new speaker. No longer is the Lord speaking about His exalted servant that He'll send. Now you have a Jewish man from a future era, and and an era that's still yet future to our own day right now, who is lamenting about the way that the people of Israel responded to the Lord's servant. When he looks back on the history of his own people and his personal history as a Jewish man, as he looks back on that, he sees that when the Lord's servant came to Israel, uh, Israel didn't receive him. They misunderstood the servant. He wasn't what they expected. He wasn't what they wanted, and so they despised and rejected him. Uh, And then in the stanza we come to today, the speaker is going to continue his lament about how he and his people misunderstood the servant's suffering. When they saw the suffering of God's servant, they thought he must be receiving some sort of just punishment from God. They thought, well, he's probably suffering because he's a blasphemer. But the reality was quite different. Uh, Now, I've told you before that Martin Luther claims that every Christian should be able to repeat Psalm 53 by heart. It's such a beautiful passage in the Old Testament, and I I do want to help you with that during this series by uh, every Sunday, even though we're going to be in a particular stanza, by reading all five stanzas of the servant song so that if you're a regular attender, you'll become very familiar with this passage by the time we're done with it. And I do want to remind you before we read it together that the first rule of Isaiah 53 is that it doesn't start in Isaiah 53. What Christians popularly think of as Isaiah 53 is a servant song in Isaiah that actually starts back in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So, let's pick up the text in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13, and read the text together. Uh, This is the Lord speaking in verse 13, and He says, "'Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted.'" Just as many people were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. 
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from, him, uh, from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him uh, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many." and interceded for the transgressors. The stanza that we're going to look at today is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. And in this stanza, the speaker looks back on the time when the greatest servant of the Lord uh, came to Israel, and speaking on behalf of his nation, he laments that they didn't, though they didn't recognize it at the time, the suffering of the Lord's servant was not his own fault as they had thought. Instead, his suffering was a result of their sins, and it resulted in their well-being. It resulted in their spiritual healing. In this stanza, we see the substitutionary suffering of the Lord's servant come into focus. And so, I've entitled our sermon, The Suffering Servant of the Lord, but I'm not sure that my title does this stanza justice uh, because the title isn't precise enough. Yes, it's true that the servant of the Lord entered into our sufferings. He took on uh, humanity, and he dealt with all the difficulties of living in a fallen world. He did suffer because of the sins of other people against him, yes, but he didn't merely suffer as a result of the sins of other people. He suffered in the place of other people. He didn't just suffer with us. He suffered for us. He suffered for us with the result that we don't have to experience the full consequences of our sin. It might have been better to call this, uh, to title this sermon, The Substitute uh, or The Substituted Servant of the Lord. Uh, this is why the servant of the Lord, then, will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. It starts to answer the enigma of the first stanza because we see that he will voluntarily suffer as a substitute to deliver people from their sins in a way that no other human being can and also in a way that no sacrificial 
animal can. Finally, in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, we get an answer to the great riddle of the Old Testament. Uh, Over 700 years before this prophecy, the Lord appeared to Moses, and He gave uh, Moses a partial glimpse of His glory. It's recorded in Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, we read this. This is the way the Lord describes Himself. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I love those words about our Lord. I hope you find them comforting. I do that He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But if you pay attention to what He says at the end, about forgiving sin, but also at the same time by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, it creates a massive theological problem. Uh, How can God uh, forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means leave guilty people unpunished? If He forgives guilty people, then by definition, they don't have to be punished for their sin. They go unpunished for their sin. And yet, on the other hand, if He doesn't allow anyone who is guilty to go unpunished, then they can't be forgiven. It looks at first, when you look at it, it looks like it's a contradiction. You can't have it both ways. Either guilty people are punished or they're forgiven. How can both things that God says be true? Well, that's the riddle of the Old Testament. That's the, that's the greatest riddle in the Torah. Uh, how can both these things be true? And for over 700 years… Uh, from that self-revelation to this point we're reading in Isaiah, for over 700 years, that riddle stood without a solution for the people of God. And here's the reason why. The Mosaic law was great, but the Mosaic law didn't resolve the riddle because even though worshipers would offer uh, the prescribed animal sacrifices that were in the law, they knew that those animal sacrifices were only a temporary covering for sin. They could never permanently take away sins. And, and Hebrews tells us that the people of Israel, they knew that in their hearts. We know that from the book of Hebrews. But we also know that they knew this for a very functional reason, because if the, if the sacrifices could make perfect uh, and take away all the sins of those who offered them, they wouldn't have to offer the same sacrifices again and again and again, year after year after year, just from a functional point of view. They knew that these sacrifices weren't taking away sin because they knew they were going to have to offer them yet again in the future. Um, they knew in their hearts that if a God-appointed substitute was to come and permanently take away all their sins, that substitute would have to have a relationship with them far closer than an animal who's not made in the image of God. And here in Isaiah 53, we finally get the answer to the great riddle of the Old Testament. The servant of the Lord will come and voluntarily offer Himself as a guilt offering in the place of His people, And for his part, the Lord will be not only pleased to accept that sacrifice, he will be pleased to crush the servant as a substitute for us. In that way, iniquity, transgression, and sin can be forgiven, and yet at the same time, they will be uh, carried away because they are punished in the person of the Lord's servant. This, brothers and sisters, 
is the gospel. This is the good news we proclaim, but not from a New Testament text this morning. We're looking at it in an Old Testament text, 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. And at the heart of this gospel message we proclaim is a doctrine that's very important, a doctrine called the penal substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus. Now, that may sound theological. I thought twice about putting that in this sermon. I was afraid that I was afraid that penal substitutionary atonement would be off-putting, you know, or maybe people's eyes would glaze over. Uh, But it's a very important doctrinal formulation for defining and also defending the gospel from false teaching. By penal substitutionary atonement, we mean that all of us incur the penalty of God's judgment uh, because of our rebellion from Him. But that penalty is more than we can bear. So, in His love, God has sent His servant to bear our iniquity. And the death the servant died was penal in the sense that He took the penalty we deserve for our sins. And because He bore the penalty for our rebellion in our place, we call it a substitutionary act. He substituted Himself for us as a perfect guilt offering for our sins. The result then of the servant's penal substitutionary atonement work is that at the end of Isaiah, uh, for instance, if you look at Isaiah 53, 5, uh, it results in our well-being and it results in our spiritual healing. That's why we use the word atonement. Now, the word atonement itself is a made-up English word. Uh, It comes from the 1520s. In the 1520s, uh, William Tyndale was trying to translate the Bible from uh, Hebrew and Greek into English, and he had to express this idea of atonement, but he didn't like any of the English words he had at his disposal. He didn't think any of the English words really did it justice. And so, in frustration, he finally gave up and made his own word. He took three English words and put them together to form a compound word in English, and those three words were at, one, meant, and we put them together and pronounce it atonement. Uh, The effect of the penal substitutionary sacrifice of the suffering servant is that it restores men to God. It helps us live at one in a harmonious relationship in peace with God. We were estranged from God by our sin, but the sacrifice of the Lord's servant heals the relationship and brings God and man back together again. Now, in our own day, this idea of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord's servant, it is under attack. Uh, But before I talk about that and defend it from the attacks we're facing, I do want to make sure that I establish that this idea is actually in the text of Isaiah. I want you to see it and see that I'm not just making up penal substitutionary atonement because I read some theologians and then I'm imposing it on the text. That's not what happened. I see it here in the text, and I want to show you that. In fact, I want to use this idea of the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord's servant to be our outline for today. And uh, if, you, if you are a person who takes notes or uses the outline at the back of the bulletin, you'll notice that uh, the verses are going to be a little bit out of order for my outline, but I'm trying to cover penal substitutionary and atonement all from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Let's pick up the text by looking at Isaiah 53, 3 first. Again, in Isaiah 53, 3, uh, this lamenting Jewish man from a future day says, 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Uh, This goes back to what we looked at in the last stanza, last Sunday. Uh, By way of lament, the speaker is saying, look, uh, this is the way we interpreted the life and death of the Lord's servant. He came to us, and we despised and rejected him. Uh, He wasn't particularly impressive or attractive to us. He wasn't what we were expecting. And when we looked around, the majority of the other people rejected him. All our leaders rejected him, and and so we didn't esteem him. We we didn't respect him. But now look at verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That Hebrew word, surely, at the beginning of verse 4, it's a conjunction in Hebrew that emphasizes a surprising plot twist, you know, something uh, that's unexpected, uh, a dramatic change from what was perceived. We thought we knew why He suffered. We thought He died because God was uh, striking him down for blasphemy. That's what we thought was going on, but the truth was dramatically different. Uh, uh, That wasn't what was happening. What was actually happening, verse 4, is he was bearing our griefs. He was carrying away our sorrows. Uh, In my edition of the New American Standard, I'm preaching from the New American Standard translation, in my edition in the marginal notes, uh, I have marginal notes that say that these words, griefs and sorrows, could read also read, our sicknesses and our pains. And so, what those Hebrew words are doing, those are from the physical, medical realm. And if you pay attention to what goes on in the verses after this verse, what you see is that uh, now this author is talking about the physical, medical realm to compare our, uh, our disease as a sickness of the soul. It's a metaphor. And so, griefs and sicknesses, that that looks at the effects of our sins. They produce a sort of spiritual disease and disorder and dysfunction that flows from within. The disease is me. The disorder is who I am and what I live for. The dysfunction is that I'm a sheep that likes to go astray, and I take pleasure in going astray. The the disease is that I live for myself instead of uh, turning to the Lord. And if griefs and sicknesses look at the sort of the effects of our sin, I think sorrows and pain look at the inward results of our sins. I have guilt, I have shame, I grieve over my sinful desires. Uh, In my right mind, I can see that these are self-defeating and will be self-destructive if I can't turn from them. I can see that life wasn't meant to be this way, and I grieve over it. Now, what does the Lord's servant then do with these griefs and sorrows and this sickness of my soul. Well, verse 4, he bears and carries them away. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate as bore here, it's used in Leviticus in the scapegoat passage. So, here's the idea of the scapegoat from Leviticus. Once a year, uh, God had a special uh, ritual for the priests where they would take a goat, and He gave instructions for the kind of goat they should use. They would take a goat, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, and he would pray a prayer confessing all the sins of Israel in the previous year, and then they wouldn't sacrifice the goat. They would set the goat free. They would send it away out into the wilderness, and the picture was of this goat taking the sins of Israel on itself 
and carrying them away out into the wilderness, uh, you know, presumably to be struck down by God. And I think there is some rabbinic literature about having someone kind of track where the goat goes, and when no one's looking, kill it, because you, you don't want the goat that bore the sin away to wander back in town and just bring the sin back into town. That's not a very good picture. So, I think they actually went beyond the law and made sure the goat didn't come back. But that's the picture that's going on here. The Lord's servant will be like that goat who carries away and bears away the sins of His people. Now, the English noun that best sums up that picture, in my opinion, is the noun substitution, right? That's what's going on. He's becoming a substitute for His people. I think verse 4 is teaching the substitutionary part of the substitutionary atonement. The suffering servant will be struck down by God. That's what smitten means at the end of the verse. He'll be struck down by God to bear away and carry away our sins. So, Isaiah 53, 4 clearly teaches substitution. The speaker realizes that the servant suffered for them, not because he was the, a special object of God's wrath, uh, but because he was sent by God to bear away their sins. Uh, substitution, I think, sums up the idea of verse 4. You find the words penal and atonement, uh, I think, summing up verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 together. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. The word but at the beginning of this verse is disjunctive, right? It's, there's a contrast. We thought that the servant was being justly struck down by God, but in reality, God pierced him for our transgressions. Uh, the Hebrew word for pierced here, it contains the idea of being pierced or impaled mortally unto death. This is not a piercing that you're going to recover from. And crushed communicates the idea of being bruised or bludgeoned or trampled to death. Uh, and then notice also in these, this verse the words chastening and scourging. Chastening is a fascinating word here because uh, it's a technical term in Hebrew used to express a legal punishment. It conjures up pictures of a, a courtroom and an indictment and a, a verdict and a, a sentence. And then scourging is also important for us as Christians because we know that Jesus of Nazareth was scourged before He was pierced and hung on a cross. So, if you take all four of those words from the perspective of Isaiah, we could say that in general, in a general sense, these words present a picture of the Lord's servant being scourged in some way, and then in some way dying a death that somehow is connected to a courtroom, and then His death beca uh, coming because He was pierced through mortally, uh, he, had, he was pierced in a way that He wouldn't recover from, and He was crushed, uh, bludgeoned to death for our sin. Now, from our place in history, we know that those aren't general Hebrew terms. Each of these specific things happened to Jesus of Nazareth. He was pierced through five times, right? Uh, once in each hand, once in each foot, and then in His side. Uh, he was also crushed. Uh, this can refer to a severe bruising, and we know that Jesus 
uh, was punched in the face. We know at one point the Roman soldiers picked up sticks or rods and beat him in the head before putting the crown of thorns on him. And what about his chastening? Well, we know that there was three Jewish trials and three Roman trials uh, um, that eventually led to Jesus being executed as an official legal punishment by the Roman governor. Now, those trials were a sham, but even though they were, uh, they, they were sham trials, they still included an indictment, a verdict, a sentence, uh, and uh, a formal uh, punishment that was carried out. Now, from a, a spiritual perspective, we could say that what happened uh, was not a sham trial in the sense that He was legitimately bearing the penalty for sins that God the Father uh, demanded, even though a human court of law had no right to put Him to death. And what about His scourging? Well, according to the gospel accounts, He was scourged before He carried His cross to Calvary. And so, all of these prophecies are given by us to help us identify God's suffering servant when He comes, and every single one of these has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what this piercing and crushing is for and what it accomplished. It's for our transgressions and iniquities. Uh, transgression is really just a Hebrew word for rebellion. What it communicates is clearly understanding God's law, um, seeing a, let's say, seeing a boundary, a boundary marker for God's law, and stepping over that boundary again and again and again, because even though we know it's wrong, we want what we want, and, and we're going to take what we want. That's the idea of uh, transgression. And the Hebrew word for iniquity captures the idea of moral uncleanness. Inside of me, there is a moral uncleanness that causes me to actually find attractive things that God says are evil and vile and ugly and polluted. Um, of all the words that describe sin in the Old Testament, I believe iniquity is the scariest word because here's what it means. It means that there's this uncleanness inside of me that causes me to find things attractive I shouldn't that I can't do anything about. Uh, think about it this way. Um, if I'm walking through life and let's say things aren't going my way and I, I feel discontent, I don't like the way things are going, well, theoretically, I can move to a different place. Theoretically, I could abandon my relationships and even my family and go try to find new people to form connections with. But the problem with that is wherever I go, whatever brand new people I meet, I bring my iniquitous heart with me with all of its desires unchanged. And even if I recognize its, its sickness and the disease that's inside of me, it's not like I can give myself a spiritual heart transplant and have a new heart. Uh, I'm desperately in need of someone to rescue me from my iniquitous desires, and that's what the servant of the Lord does. So pay attention then to the measure of how seriously, in this verse, God is taking our rebellion. We attempt to make light of our shortcomings and our, our um, uh, what would we say, our mistakes, our foibles, you know, we, we choose uh, language that's euphemistic, but God will have none of it. Our refusal to bow to our Creator's law and our constant creation of laws of our own that compete with His, that is the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone is found to stand in our place, we will be impaled 
uh, by nails of our own transgressions, and we will be crushed by our own iniquities. So, pierced and crushed and chastening and scourging, they all add up to this English, English adjective, in my opinion, penal, that there is a, a penalty that has to be paid. Someone had to endure a capital punishment for crimes we committed. And the word well-being in Hebrew, if you notice, uh, what, what does all this accomplish? Well, someone qualified to pay the price came, and they voluntarily took our place, and by taking our penalty, they uh, accomplish our well-being and our spiritual healing. That word for well-being in Hebrew is shalom. You know it. It's peace. It, it creates… Uh, what He did creates a peace with God, and it, it results in our spiritual healing. So, what the servant did then was to take our punishment and affect our spiritual healing and restore us to, ha- to a harmonious relationship with God. And this, this is where we get the word atonement from. I think when you look at well-being, when you look at our healing, that's where I would say you can find the word atonement or the idea of atonement in this passage. So, the suffering servant's work restores our relationship to our Creator. It makes us one with God again. So, as you move then down into verse 6, Verse 6 rounds out the stanza by emphasizing again the penalty for our rebellion and the substitution that took place. Look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Uh, Now, we need to say something about sheep here, right? Okay, so sheep, the use of sheep, it's the only like uh, um, ongoing metaphor that's used in the passage to compare us to something. And uh, sheep can be notoriously single-minded about getting that next clump of grass, and yet even though they're notoriously single-minded about whatever they want to eat, they can be uh, completely oblivious to dangers that are around them, uh, right? They can be very stubborn about pursuing the next clump of grass, even if it's in a thicket, even if it's in, on the side of a cliff. Uh, they're prone to wander and get lost. And like them, we are often oblivious to the spiritual dangers around us. We're often oblivious to the consequences of the decisions we're making. And because of that, we get ourselves into situations where we're helpless to save ourselves from the consequences of what we've done, especially eternal consequences. Now, last week, I went to great lengths to demonstrate that the lament of the previous stanza and the lament we're finding in this stanza, it was spoken by a Jewish man, or will be spoken in a future day, by a Jewish man, uh, when the nation of Israel, as a nation, repents and turns to Christ. Now, that's the context of Isaiah 53, 1 through 9. But I do want to acknowledge there is a sense in which any Gentile can confess most of the content of this lament. Okay, so maybe verse 2, maybe we're left out of verse 2 because we didn't see the earthly life of Messiah. We didn't see that He had an unimpressive spiritual appearance, I'm sorry, physical appearance. We weren't attracted to Him. Okay, so maybe verse 2, it doesn't fit our experience as Gentiles, but many of these verses fit our experience as Gentiles. Why is it that we Gentiles, chapter 52, verse 15, need to be sprinkled? Well, because, verse 6, all of us Gentiles have gone astray. Maybe we didn't have access to or knowledge of God's law in the form of the Ten Commandments when we were growing up, right? Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you didn't grow up in a particularly religious home. You went to public schools. You didn't know about the Ten Commandments. Okay, 
but we still went astray from the law of God written on our hearts, and we did it because of our iniquitous desires. We've suppressed the truth of God's law in order to write our own law and live according to our own rules, and we've tried to ignore His existence because uh, that's the best way to go astray and still feel good about it. And so, uh, uh, in all of these verses, I think you can find things that Gentiles like us can own up to and acknowledge and confess. And of all the verses, verse 6 is particularly damning. It's one thing to confess having wrong thoughts about the Lord's servant, you know, we misunderstood His suffering. It's one thing to uh, admit we have wrong behaviors, you know, I've committed some transgressions, I've done the wrong thing. But verse 6 is a confession of our nature. Why do we commit sin? Because it's in our nature. Why do sheep act the way they act? They act according to their natural impulses. They do what they do because they're sheep. Sheep follow internal impulses that often lead them astray from everything that is safe and secure and helpful, and we do the same thing. We follow our own intuitions, the cravings of our own fallenness. We sin because that's part of human nature ever since Adam ate the forbidden fruit, and it's led us to go astray from our Creator and insist on our own way instead of thriving within the boundaries of God's law. But instead of punishing us for that rebellion, the Lord has laid our iniquities on the head of the suffering servant. So again, we come back again with the the Hebrew uh, idea here of causing the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The picture, again, is of the scapegoat, except that in verse 6, instead of looking at the servant as the scapegoat, we're now looking at the Lord Himself. We're looking at the Lord God as the high priest Uh, putting the sins of Israel and Gentiles on the head of the scapegoat and sending the scapegoat away. That's what the end of verse 6 is picturing. And so, again, in verse 6, you see our desperate condition, which warrants a penalty, the penalty of death, and you see the substitution of the suffering servant whom the Lord causes to bear away our sins. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, then teach the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus that's at the heart of the gospel. Now, I said earlier in the sermon that this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord's servant, it's under attack in our day. And so, with the time that remains, I want to I deal with three objections to this idea of a substitutionary atonement. Uh, these three objections are making their rounds, not only in our culture outside the church, but they're even making their rounds within the church, uh, within the EFCA, uh, right, within our own denomination and other uh, gospel-teaching, Bible-believing denominations of Protestants, and we need to deal with them. And, and uh, I want to deal with them because the whole exercise is part of clarifying and protecting the gospel and defining and defending the beauty of Isaiah 4, uh, 53, 4 through 6. The first objection is this, why can't God just forgive without demanding a payment because, after all, that's how He commands us to forgive, right? He commands us to release debts and forgive people without demanding some kind of payment or sacrifice on their behalf. Why doesn't He just do the same thing? Well, the answer is that God is in a different station than we are. 
uh, right? Uh, he is the, the creator and the lawgiver and the judge of the entire universe. Um, and our sins against Him are not sins against some external moral code of conduct. Our sins against His law uh, aren't just sins against some abstract moral code. They are betrayals of the one who made us and loves us. Uh, God, um, as the ruler of the universe, He has to enforce justice. So, for God to forgive sin, He must do so by remaining true to Himself and His justice. And that's only possible if the full demands of His moral uh, law are met. For God to declare sinners justified, His Son had to perfectly obey the law, as we should have, and then die the death we deserve for our sins to be forgiven for and paid for, either on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ or by the sinner in hell. The second objection is that transferring guilt to an innocent victim, even if that victim volunteers for the job, that uh, transferring guilt to an innocent victim is unjust. Um, think about it this way. If I went into a courtroom and there was a man accused of committing murder and he was convicted of murder and sentenced uh, to life in prison, if I volunteered to serve his life sentence in his stead so that he could go free, no sane judge in our nation would let me do that, right? It, it lets a, a, a guilty murderer back out onto the streets. It puts an innocent, law-abiding member of society behind bars who shouldn't be behind bars. It makes no sense. It's, there's no justice in it. For justice to be served, the guilty party should pay the penalty. But the problem with this objection is that it assumes the analogy of a human courtroom in such a way that the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is ignored. Uh, no doubt, in a human court, right, uh, if a judge adjudicating a law external to himself uh, tries to transfer guilt to a third party, that would be unjust. But in the case of the gospel, God is both the judge in that courtroom, but He's also the offended party. He has final authority to declare whether our sins have been paid for or not. And causing the iniquity of us all to fall on His Son, uh, by doing so, He was not punishing a third party because the Lord Jesus Christ was truly human and truly God. So, He's not a third party, right? On the cross, God paid the penalty for sin Himself in Christ. Uh, for the very person we've sinned against to bear the penalty of our sin himself isn't some kind of unjust transfer of guilt to a third party. It's missing, it's misunderstanding what happened at the cross. In fact, if God were to punish the sins of those whose guilt has been carried away by Christ, He would be unjust because He'd be punishing the same sin twice, once in the person of Christ and then again in the sinner, and God is not unjust. He is both just in requiring a payment for our sin and the justifier of the ungodly by paying for our sins Himself in Christ. The third objection to penal substitution uh, that is, it's very popular. This is a trope that you can find uh, on secular uh, blog sites, um, and it's popular particularly among the feminist, is that uh, what happened at the cross is divine child abuse. Uh, and maybe we could answer that this way. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father. That, that's the way that they're portrayed 
in the New Testament. But the Father didn't nail Him to the cross as a little child, right, dragging Him, kicking and screaming against His will, and nail Him to a cross. Jesus of Nazareth was a full-grown man uh, and the divine Son who went willingly to the cross, and all the gospel accounts show that He did what He did knowingly, and He did it voluntarily. And again, He wasn't a third party. He was a uniquely qualified mediator between God and man because He was truly God and truly man all at the same time. He chose to become a qualified representative for humanity by taking on human flesh and living with us. And He stood in our place, lived out the obedience to God's law that you and I should have rendered, and then voluntarily died for us. Claiming that what happened at the cross is divine child abuse, it misrepresents the unity of the Father and the Son in the plan of redemption. It misrepresents uh, who God the Son is. It, it misrepresents the volition of the Son of God who chose to give Himself as a guilt offering. Uh, now, over the years, in addition to these objections, there have also been alternate explanations of the cross that deny its substitutionary nature by giving other theories of the atonement. Um, and I don't have time to go into all of those, right? Because there's a fellowship lunch and I'm getting hungry. But let me sum up, let me sum up those alternate uh, views of the atonement in, let me try to sum them up in one paragraph. When the suffering servant came, he didn't just die to show the power of love, or to show a, a, a good moral influence. He didn't die as an example of sacrifice. He didn't die uh, as uh, the victim of a noble cause that accidentally ran afoul of the Sanhedrin. And he also didn't die simply as Christus Victor. Yes, he is Christus Victor, and Peter talks about that in both of his letters. Yes, the death and resurrection of Christ won the victory over Satan, demons, death, and evil in the world. It's true, he is Christus Victor. But the people who push that try to say he's Christus Victor while ignoring the substitutionary nature of what he did. He is Christus Victor, but he's more than that. He substituted himself for us to pay the penalty we deserve to satisfy the justice of God. The fact is, brothers and sisters, God has not treated you and I according to what our transgressions deserve, but neither has He overlooked them. Rather, He placed them on His own Son, the servant, who voluntarily died in our place for our well-being. Uh, it is true that these middle stanzas of Isaiah 53 are a prophecy about a future repentant generation of Israel. That's true. But the entire passage is also an offer of salvation to all of us who are Gentiles. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says it this way, "'If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed.'" For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.